Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Julie Burwald, where I ask her, what's a day in the life of a coral reef? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have such an interesting episode for you today. So welcome to the show, Dr. Julie Burwald, who is a science writer living in Austin, Texas. Yes, Austin, Texas. She's the author of Spineless, The Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone. Her new book, Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs, is out now. Our guiding question for today is how deep can we dive in coral reefs? Or on coral reefs, really however you want to think about it. But first of all, how are you, Dr. Julie? I'm so fantastic. And this is so wonderful to be on Getting Curious. I can't believe it. It's it's really a dream. Thank you for having me. Ah, Well, thank you for having us. So let me tell you about why this kind of like started. My husband and I went to Turks and Caicos for our honeymoon last year. And we got to like go snorkeling in this like stunning coral reef. And I realized that there was like all of this bleaching, like a lot of like the coral was like getting bleached. And I was asking our tour guide, is this like the thing that I was reading about in like the news? And he was like, yeah, like when I was little, it wasn't like this. And now it's like all like this. And I was like, no. So that's how I got curious about coral reefs. Coral Reefs 101. This is going to be, you know, deep. Yeah. Uh, I hope you can handle it. Just kidding. What is a coral reef? It's a really good question because until like really the 1700s, people didn't know what coral were. They thought they were plants because they look so planty. It turns out corals are animals just like we are. And they have nervous systems and they have stomach and they have digestive juices. What? And they, yeah. And they make eggs and sperm. They're, they're animals. They're totally animals. But they're like the craziest kind of animal because... They have made what I like to call the badass merger with an algae. So these algae live in their skin and they photosynthesize like all green things do. And they feed the coral 90% of the sugar that they make from photosynthesis. Coral live in tropical oceans and tropical oceans, they don't have very many nutrients. And so... There shouldn't be so much life in tropical ocean waters, but because the coral have made this alliance, they have made the coral reefs into like the most productive ecosystem on our planet. So the, the algae make all the sugar from the sunlight and they feed the coral the sugar. And then the coral have so much sugar that they turn that sugar into the reefs, into making limestone. And they make that limestone just outside their bodies, like underneath their foot. And that's what the reef is made out of. Is it their poop? No, it's more like oh. their bones. It's more like their uh, bones. Ah. Except for they make them outside their body. So they kind of poop bones. But <laughs> like, their bones are like cool and like grow really like tall, yes. big, cool structures that are like pretty and like aren't made of poop. Yes. And like they're the biggest structures made by any biological, even us, on the planet. Like the Great Barrier Reef is the size of Italy. Like you could take the Great Barrier Reef, lay it across the West Coast of the United States, and it would drip off down to Tijuana and off the top into Vancouver. Like it's massive. And these little teeny coral that are just like two tissue layers thick made it because of the algae that they've like formed this incredible alliance with. 
Okay, that's so genius. I can't stand it. So, <laughs> so why are these restructures so critical to life in the sea and beyond? So a quarter of all marine species live in coral reefs at some point of their life. It's because of those skeletons, you know, they create all these like intricate habitats. And so an animal that likes to be up on top can be in the sun and one that likes to be in the shade can be in a little cave underneath. And, you know, they can drill down into the old skeletons and kind of just pop their tentacles up. And, you know, they can do all kinds of things in this like complicated city structure um, that is in the tropical oceans. I've definitely like seen exactly what you're talking about because it's like it's so diverse and such like a little space. A quarter of all marine species depend on coral reefs for their life, but about between a half a billion and a billion people also depend on coral reefs for their primary source of protein like fish. So people around the world require the reefs to be healthy in order to fish and get their primary source of protein. So it's also a humanitarian issue that the coral reefs are struggling right now. Dang, I also just got distracted because your blow dry looks really good. Sorry, I had to say it. It's giving me when you got when you got really serious about the importance of like the humanity around like coral reefs, like you, like your hair started like bouncing and like the, it was like, no, like the movement was like really pretty. So where are like coral reefs commonly found? Are they like all over the oceans or more just kind of like select spaces? So coral reefs can only live in tropical waters. They have to be in warm water. They have to be close to the surface because they have to give the algae enough sunlight to grow and give them all that sugar. And so they're confined to these tropical places around our planet. Um, But the problem is we have climate change happening and the oceans have taken up about 90% of the heat that Um, the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere has been holding. So like the oceans are already a degree and a half or so on average warmer than they used to be, you know, in the 1950s. So when the water temperature increases by two degrees for like about a month at a time, we don't still know why, but the algae will abandon the coral. And we don't know who throws the first trigger. So like bleaching has been known for about a century Um, But usually it was just like a kind of thing that happened at low tide when the coral was close to the surface and it was like a really hot summer day. The algae would leave and and it was noticed back in the early 1900s, but there was never like these massive bleachings that we're seeing today. And those started in the late 1980s where just these huge swaths of reefs will turn white because when the algae leaves the coral, the coral doesn't have any color of its own. All of its color comes from the algae. So then it just looks like bare bones. Mm. So what's the anatomy of a healthy coral reef? So they're unique ecosystems everywhere they exist. And like in the Caribbean, talking about the hard corals, the one that make the skeletons, uh, there's only about 44 species of those there. And in the like 1970s and 80s, it was always this like jungle of what are called a crepera species, which are these branching and sort of like they look like elkhorns and staghorns, you know, they were like these jungle systems. And then within that, there were these kind of more massive corals that looked like columns or like boulders or like brains in the Pacific. It's even more complicated. There's 10 times more. So there's 400 species of coral there. And coral are so weird because they can hybridize really easily. So like what's a species is a question that isn't really settled. But so there it can be even more kind of fairyland looking where there's like filigrees and, and, you know, tables and plates and like all kinds of different structures of coral. 
And and so it's just magical. In a reef, like what's like the top of it do? What's the bottom of it do? Like, is there like a system of function within like the wider reef that would mirror like a human or like a car? There is zonation on a reef. You'll find certain more light loving, warm loving animals near the top. And then you'll find a little more of the shade loving, cooler animals near the bottom. And then reefs can't get too deep because they need that light for the photosynthesis of the algae. Well, that's really interesting. I'm obsessed with that story. What's like the Indian Ocean reefs like? So the center of diversity of all coral is what's called the Coral Triangle. And that's between Indonesia, Palau, and the Philippines. And then it kind of like smears out to both, you know, the East and the West. And so as you go into the Indian Ocean, you still have a ton, like two or 300 species of coral. In fact, the coral reefs around Egypt and Israel in the Red Sea are some of, maybe some of the most well positioned to survive our heating planet because there's like a lump in the ocean in order to get to that part of the ocean. So they had to pass through this warm part of the ocean even to get there in the first place. So they've kind of been like pre-selected for warmth. And also they're sort of north. So as our planet warms, they've got like a really good chance of surviving. And what's really cool is like not to get a little political, but maybe to get a little political, the next COP meeting where we talk about climate change is positioned right in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, which is Mm -hmm. right on the edge of these reefs, which are literally like their survival depends on what decisions are made on shore right a few miles away. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So now we're going into coral. So now this is the detail. So coral is a literal animal, which I think I didn't totally grasp my mind around that. So how does it reproduce? Coral are hermaphrodites. They're all, yes, they're all have male and female sides to them. In fact, they don't have, really clear X and Y chromosomes. There's this one coral that these students were telling me about when I was in the Dominican Republic. And they're like, oh, that thing, that thing just spews a lot of spawn when it spawns. And, and I was like, um, wow. So like, it's, it's like tons of sperm coming out because they named it Romeo. And they're like, oh no, Romeo is now releasing eggs. So coral spawn, they're so romantic. Because they spawn once or twice a year in the summertime and they time it, you know, like they can't get walk over to find like someone to reproduce with. So they have to release their eggs into the water. The best chance of having those eggs and sperm find another mate is to time it perfectly. And so a few days after the full moon, like nine days after the full moon in August, at a certain amount of time after sunset, they, each species has like their 45 minute period (laughs) where they each release their eggs and sperm into the water. And it's like, it's the water becomes like a reverse snow globe. And it's just, it's like magical. So some of the corals, like they release like sacks, like where like the egg is in one and the sperm is in one or they're together in a packet or they're always together. Yeah. So like the acropora, the ones that are kind of the branchy, they release these eggs and sperm packets and they're they're like pretty and like pale pink and the ocean waves break them apart into separating out the eggs and the sperm. And then hopefully they find another one to mate with. And it's really cool. Like they have put in little um, 
protein codes in the in their eggs and sperm that tell them don't mate with with each other because that wouldn't be good for the species. Like it, the reason for reproduction is to mix up the gene pool. So if you're just going to mate with your own self, that's well, that's asexual reproduction. Like that's one way to do it. But um, the reason why animals do have eggs and sperm is to mix up the gene pool. So right. They they actually put protections, protein protections in there to like make sure they don't fertilize themselves. Um, so, but it's amazing that, you know, this, this happens. And what's also amazing is like, we really didn't even know that until the 1980s that the, that corals reproduce on mass like that, that they do, like they have these like huge, basically orgies in the ocean. So Um, where do they store their sacs? Like in the structure itself, like in like the coral structure. Okay. They're just like a cup and they have tentacles. Uh, surrounding their mouth and they just have one hole and um, that hole is both their mouth and their butt. They eat and poop out of the same thing. Like I said, most of their food comes from, most of their nutrition comes from the algae, but they also can sting their prey with stinging cells, just like jellyfish and just like sea anemones can. And look, I'm going to just take an aside on the stinging cell because it is perhaps the most sophisticated biological structure ever. So it's like a capsule. And inside is like a tubule and it's made out of the same stuff as like uh, spider webs are. So it's like strong and stretchy. And then there's like a trigger out here on the end of it. And that trigger is almost the same as the um, hair cells in our ears that allow us to hear sound. And so actually they're like listening for the buzzing of a plankton. (laughs) And then... That when they, when that like vibrates at the same frequency as the plankton, the capsule pops open and it inside the tubule is like a, a pair of stockings that's like inside out and it like unfurls the right way. And okay, I'm going to just use a little like, see that? That's the acceleration of gravity. That's one G. So something falling to the ground. The speed that that tubule, the stockings, unfurls and fires is 5 million times faster. 5 million times faster. <laughs> it's the fastest fastest known motion in the animal kingdom. And it's like, yeah, it's jaw dropping. It's like crazy that these animals, these like simple animals have this like incredible um, power. And so they can sting their prey, their plankton prey. And then they use their tentacles. They kind of use cilia to move it into their mouth and into their stomach, and then they digest what they can, and then they spit out what they can't digest. And alongside the stomach is where their gonads are. So when the eggs are ready and the sperm are ready, they're when they're ripe and ready to be released, they move them into the stomach, and then they spit them out their mouth, anus structure. Wow. And again, I guess I just am really like, I can't get over this part. So every single coral species, they all do egg and sperm packet. All of them. No. So some of them will just release like Romeo. They released sperm for a few years and then switch to eggs. And then they might switch back to sperm again. So all these polyps are networked together in a colony. So half the colony released eggs and half of it released sperm. If the ones do like... 
like Romeo, like eggs and then sperm or like, you know, half does this. And are they all in little packets or do some of them just like float out little floaty spermies and floaty eggs, yeah. not in a packet? Yeah. Yeah. Most eggs have some like fats, like just like an egg, you know, like a chicken egg does like the yolk, right? That's yeah. what the baby's supposed to survive on for a little while after it's hatched. So the, so most of the coral eggs have yolky stuff in them too, like that's that. And that actually helps it float up to the surface where they meet their sperm. So they meet the sperm on the surface usually? Usually, yeah. And then they turn into a little larvae and the little larvae looks like a furry Tic Tac. It's like, it's just, it, it meansy, 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 meansy. And that, the larvae's job is to swim. It kind of spins like a corkscrew kind of, and it swims back down and it finds like a hard surface to attach to. And it's like a seed, you know, it has to make this like one major decision of its life and plant itself somewhere from which it'll never, ever be able to move again. And then it starts filling its little skeleton and it, goes to try to find its algae. Some coral give their baby eggs um, the algae to to start their new life with, um, but some coral don't. And so then those that don't have to like kind of go fishing for the algae to in- infect them. And then they make start making their little skeleton and then the little, first little polyp is there. And then they start dividing and become many, many polyps and becoming a full colony. But couldn't... Like the little furry tic tac just go back down into like a pre existing coral reef structure? Or do they all start like new ones? Well, so, okay. So, like, coral are, you know, there's like so many species, I said, like I said. And, and when they live too close together, there's like territorial battles that they have with each other. So they have, they have special, special tentacles, which are called sweeper tentacles. And, and so when a coral like wants to invade on their territory, they'll like throw these sweeper tentacles out and like fire those stinging cells off at another colony to like clear the space because they want their territory. So if a baby, a baby coral probably wouldn't want to be too close to an established colony because it might get sweeper tentacled. So, uh, yes, so, you know, they, they, but it does want a hard surface to live on. And so in some places where reefs have been destroyed and turned to rubble, there's not that when the rubble rolls around, it's not a good surface for the coral to establish itself on. And then, um, that's, that's when coral restoration can really be helpful. Um, because the cor- the baby coral, it really needs a stable place to, to lay down its initial skeleton. Okay, I, I think I understand. And then how can we tell like how long a certain reef has like been alive? We have to drill down into the reef and you can count sort of the generations of coral that have been there. Modern corals have been around for several, tens of millions of years. Um, and there were corals around before that for hundreds of millions of years. Those coral species kind of went through some extinctions like as our planet has gone through extinctions. Um, but yeah, I mean, the reefs are, are are millions of years old. And how have they like evolved from those like older ones that went through extinction events to like now? Evolution, you know, has this ability to cause gene mutations and the ones that can better handle the environment persist. And the ones that don't get weeded out um, 
it's a slow, slow process, but you know, the corals have been able to do it for millions and millions of years. And now we're hitting this point where we're changing the ocean so fast. There's significant questions about whether they'll be able to keep up. So how have like, how have scientists like understanding of resolve? Cause like you were saying that we didn't really even know how they reproduced until the eighties. Well, I mean, we knew that they did like that. We knew their eggs and sperm and all of that oh. business, but we didn't know that they did it like to the light of the moon several nights oh. after. And really the reason is, is because scuba diving, I mean, we think scuba diving has been around forever, but you know, like Jacques Cousteau basically invented it. So, so like it has only been around for 50 years or so. And once coral scientists were able to get in the water and watch the coral, that's when they discovered these huge mass spawnings in Australia in the 80s. And, ah. and, and, and we didn't really know that was happening before then. So we know that like warming waters is a huge threat to coral, but what about like habitat destruction? Yeah, it's also a big deal. So um, in the Caribbean, the corals have been really suffering since the 70s. And part of that is probably due to fertilizer runoff, changing the water quality. Coral, you know, like I said, coral live in this part. They like to live where they've evolved to live in places where there's not many nutrients in the water, not much, and fertilizer are nutrients for whatever we're trying to grow on land. Um, and that leads to um, a lot of coral disease. So the Caribbean's been really hit with tons and tons of coral disease. The longest barrier reef in the world is the Great Barrier Reef. The second longest one is from the Yucatan down into Belize and Honduras. And then the third longest one is from Miami down to the edge of the Florida Keys. That one's about mm. over 300 miles long. But in some places, only 2% of the coral that used to be there still exist in the Florida Reef mm. track. And that's Lots to do with water quality issues due to runoff. So pollution's a big deal. Um, in some parts of the world, people use explosives to um, to fish. Um, they throw bombs and it's called blast fishing. And it happens all over the Pacific and some places around Africa. And it's because of poverty. Um, you know, it's, it's less, it's, it takes less time to fish using a bomb. But when you throw a bomb in the water, it destroys the coral underneath the bomb. And then there's another thing. Um, a lot of places, people really want to buy live fish before they eat them. They, you know, they, they want to have the fish swimming in the aquarium and then you pick that one out and you have that one for dinner. And so they'll use cyanide. They'll go down with a water bottle full of cyanide and squirt at like a coral trout or something, it blocks its hemoglobin so it can't get oxygen, but it also blocks the oxygen um, from the coral, which are animals and need to breathe. Um, and so you'll get like these huge scars from cyanide fishing also. So there's a lot of threats to the coral reef out there. And then, God, and then what about sunscreen? <laughs> yeah, you know, so sunscreen is a is a really great question. And when I started writing the book, I was really curious about sunscreen too. And when I went to see some coral restoration projects like in Indonesia, I was really careful to use um, mineral sunscreens and not use any sunscreens with oxybenzone, which is the chemical that's been implicated in coral health. But um, I 
also, when I got home, I like did a really deep dive into the question of sunscreen or coral. And there were some studies done that showed that sunscreen was really negatively affecting coral and specifically the coral larvae, the little baby Tic Tacs we were talking about. But those studies were never repeated. They weren't, no one was able to repeat those studies. So the, within the coral community, the question of sunscreen and corals seems to be taking a backseat to these other bigger issues like the blast fishing, the cyanide fishing, the pollution, and the climate change. I've never heard of bomb fishing. How common is bomb fishing? So I went to this really cool coral restoration project in Sulawesi. And um, unbelievably, like the Mars Candy Bar Company are the people behind this restoration project. And um, the head of the, one of the grandchildren of Mars, his name's Frank Mars, he just was, is really, really loves coral. And he also noticed that like the people who work in his chocolate factories in Sulawesi, like I mentioned about that protein source, they were struggling to have the protein they'd always relied on because their reefs were declining so badly. So he was like, what can we do to restore the reefs? And in this part of Indonesia, blast fishing is a really big deal. So he came up with this, like these like structures that look like stars kind of made out of rebar and you network them together and they stabilize the reef and they, it's unbelievable what he's done. Like within three years, the reef is vibrant, beautiful. Like I saw sea turtles and sharks and all this stuff. And where, where there had been blast fishing scars, but every time I went diving on those reefs, I heard one or two bombs go off underwater. Wow. So, yeah. And that was just the times that I was underwater, you know, which, yeah. Not like so much time. Like it wasn't like you were down there like yeah, for a long like time. Yeah, like I went like, yeah, you can only stay down for about an hour. And I probably dove, you know, five or six times. So what happens when the coral dies? Like just the animals leave and and what else? Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like clear cutting a forest or something like all those quarter of the marine species that depend on the coral reef don't have anywhere to live. And you have a huge ecosystem that is collapsed. Mm. Um, So it's it's pretty horrible. One of the cool things, um, though, is when I was in Sulawesi is they're like listening to the sounds of a healthy reef. And just like when you walk through a healthy forest, you know how it sounds like you can hear the birds tweeting and you can hear like the squirrels scattering up the trees and, you know, it's, it's kind of a noisy place. So is a healthy coral reef. And when they're doing these restoration projects in Indonesia, they're actually putting speakers out with the sounds of a healthy reef on the restoration and they find that the animals come in to colonize the reef faster if you play them like basically the music of a healthy reef. Oh, how interesting. I know, yeah. And you know, it's really important like coral, coral are are kind of, when they're starting to establish themselves, they're they're like in a race with algae um, to, to cover the surfaces faster. And one of the things that really helps them is if there's fish that eat algae, not, and I'm not talking about the algae in their skin at this point. I'm talking about like kind of more like mossy stuff. Right. And there's fish that will come in and do that, but only if they like feel like the reef is a healthy place to be. Oh my God, I love that. It's so interesting. I know. <laughs> 
So what, like, how much lasting damage has already been done to reefs? Probably every reef on our planet has experienced bleaching and death because of of climate change. Um, I don't think there's one that hasn't experienced it. Since 2016, it's almost been a constant mass bleaching somewhere in the world. When coral bleach, they lose their nutrition and they can kind of survive it for like a few weeks or so because they can eat food using their stinging cells. If the water cools down, the algae can actually come back in and reinfect the coral and they can survive it. Um, but if the if it stays hot, they can't survive it and they die. Mm. So who's working to like protect and restore coral reefs? You mentioned the the story in like the Indonesian place with the Mars people. Yeah. Um, who else is doing cool stuff? So in the Caribbean, the corals, they're so sick that they aren't really even reproducing so well by themselves. So they're doing like these massive in vitro fertilizations where they collect the spawn, they take them to a lab, they mix them all together, let them turn into little larvae, and then they put them in these giant boats and let them kind of like float out there um, in the water and settle down on like little kind of tinker toy looking things that they can re-put back onto the reef just like by the thousands. The problem is coral reefs are so big and they take up, they're so important. We really have to scale up these efforts. And um, I mean, this is, this is one of the big problems is like not enough people are doing stuff to help the coral. And there's a disconnect, I think, between the scientists are working really hard to try to figure out like how to cause more reproduction to happen, how to support the corals that are out there. But like the funding has been really, really limited for it. The United Nations has um, these sustainable development goals and they're like all the things we would want for our planet. So like getting rid of poverty and um, having uh, having food for everybody and educating everybody and, you know, all these wonderful things. And one of them Number 14 is life below the seas. And it receives about 0.56% of the funding. 0.56. So, you know, we just really have neglected our oceans. And the coral are kind of the first ecosystem in our ocean to have this existential threat facing it. Um, and it's a real problem. And And yes, like Mars is doing some things. There's hotel change like um, that are doing some things to protect their coral reefs. There's a business called Coral Vita that's trying to do like on-land farming of corals. There's this thing called the Coral Restoration Foundation in Florida that grows coral in orchards under the seas. There's a lot of small groups that are working to try to protect the coral, but it's it's really lacking in terms of the scale of what's needed. So who needs to step up and get involved that hasn't done it yet? I mean... Governments? Yes, governments. Like, here's an example. There's a terrible, terrible, terrible disease raging through the Caribbean. It started in Miami in 2014. It's called stony coral tissue loss disease. And it's, it's basically... I mean, it's basically like the 
the, the coral tissue falls off its body, like it, like Ebola, like it causes the tissues to just turn to mush. And it affects half the species in the Caribbean, so 20 of them. And the there was a $4 million, so $2 million from Florida and $2 million from the federal government that was put together to fight this disease. And it's like so little, like it's a rounding error in any government budget. And when you look at how much like the coral reefs support uh, like almost a billion dollars worth of tourism in Florida every year. And so the, the Delta just doesn't make sense. And the problem is, is like our infrastructure isn't really in place to support coral reefs either. So it's, it's such a hard question, like who needs to step up, like kind of everybody. And, you know, maybe there's some progress being made because last year, for the first time, the United Nations tried to put together this thing called the Global Fund for Coral Reefs. And it's a half a billion dollars for the first time, like the, you know, it was hundreds of millions. And they're trying to fund it. So it was supposed to be like public and private partnerships coming together. And whether that will happen, I don't know. But at least like this is the first large scale initiative for coral reefs that's ever been proposed. And it's tough. So your book, Life on the Rocks, is also a personal narrative. And can you share some of that aspect of the book with listeners? Yeah. So um, when I was writing the book and kind of going around the world and, and seeing a lot of the sickness, but also some of the hope that exists and just kind of how badass corals are in general, um, but, but a lot of sickness on the reef. And, and at the same time, there was this kind of growing sickness in my home, own home, which was that my daughter, who is amazing, um, started suffering from really severe mental health. And initially, we didn't know what was, what was the cause of it. And kind of, I started to see some parallels between the sickness on the reef and what was happening with my daughter. And I started writing about it almost like, this doesn't belong in this book. Um, but the more I wrote about it, the more I felt like there were these these parallels, which is that like mental health is often invisible. Like we can't see it. And what's happening to the coral is just also so invisible. Like we're terrestrial creatures and it's really hard to see. Like Jonathan, you saw it when you went on your honeymoon, but most of the time we don't see it. And yet, I mean, I think as you know, mental health is so foundational to everything else that makes life beautiful. And in the same way, the coral reefs are so foundational to all these things that make life in the ocean so beautiful. So I felt like these stories did have a place um, that wound together in, in the book. And when I told my editor, like, I'm not sure, but I think these things belong together. She was just like, let me see it. And then she agreed, like, this is this is your best writing. Mm. So that's, that's what happened. And, and, and I should say this, like, you know, I, I ask Isabel, like my daughter, how do you feel about me using your story? And I will say, I tried very hard to say it from a mother's point of view to not ever assume what she was think, thinking or feeling. Um, and so it's the mother of someone with a mental illness story. It's not, it's not her story. She, she gets to tell her own story, but she felt strongly that that it was 
it was important because, and she's become such an advocate for mental health, which I, I'm so proud of her for, um, because we don't get anywhere by not talking about these things. That's incredible. And I think that's just so cool. And I, I love that. I think that so much of life is about um, sharing our stories and sharing our experiences with pain and um you know, healing through that. So I just think that's really beautiful. What was it like to connect like your scientist side with your like home life? Was that just like a completely new experience? When I wrote Spineless, the first book, I was, I was a scientist. I'd become a science writer, but kind of more of educational media science writer. And, um, I actually got asked to write, uh, write the text for this photography book. And I, I wrote my heart out and then I got fired. um, The photographer was like, I want someone more famous than you to write this. And that's when I kind of realized, like, I want to write a book. Like I, I want to be an author. And then I started reading like a ton of nonfiction books that I thought could be like guides for me. And I would always finish them and put them on my nightstand and be like, I can't write a book like that. And a lot of times it was because the voices were like male, really authoritative voices. Um, not that I don't feel like I'm authoritative, but one day I put a book down and I was like, oh, I can't write a book like that. And they were like, wait, I can't write a book like that. I can only write a book like I can write, you know? And it just like, I shifted that in inflection and suddenly I realized like, I can only write a book that's about a scientist who's a person who has like struggles and wonders and makes mistakes and does like stupid things. And so Spineless is about me and this really bad boyfriend I had in grad school <laughs> and all the mistakes I made and and how um, I had to learn to grow my own spine as like a writer, as an author, as a citizen. And so when I went to write Life on the Rocks, I did I thought for sure this time I'm not going to include my personal story, but then, like I said, it wound its way in. So it may be the only way I can write is to tell my readers, like, look, this is who I am and this is what I'm struggling with. And all scientists aren't, scientists aren't people in white coats who like are in a bubble or silo. They're people and they're trying their best and they're making mistakes and they're hoping that they are coming up with things that matter, that make sense of our world. And I think that if we break down that boundary between scientists and human, it would be really good for everyone. So it's definitely a more like holistic approach. So yeah. what's what's next for you and for your research? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm working on a young adult novel about a 16-year-old girl who saves the world from climate change. So <laughs> we'll have to... Um, you will have to see. I just said it out loud. So that means I have to finish it, right? <laughs> and so oh, you love I'm that. Scared. <laughs> I'm scared of fiction, but I'm going to give it a shot. And I'm um, working on um, some other just articles. And I'm also um, working on a, another story, which is about this um, jellyfish scientist who survived the Holocaust by hiding in the Natural History Museum in the Netherlands. And um, it turns out a bunch of people hit there. And so I'm trying to tell that story too. So I have two kind of books I'm working on right now. That's so interesting. So if people yeah. have listened to this episode and they're like, 
I got to get into research. I got to get into science. I, where do I even start? If they're just like really in, like keen on the coral, they're keen on like ocean science, but maybe they're like really like, where do they start to like research into like, what do you study? How do you become like a marine science expert? I grew up like you did in the Midwest and I never snorkeled or anything growing up. I mean, my parents, I think, took us to the beach, but they didn't know about snorkeling either, you know? So um, in college, I went to Israel for my junior year and and I was kind of miserable. And I went, they, there was like this little sign, like, you know, that thing you pluck off the side of... Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it was like marine ecology course. And I was like, okay, I'll take that. And I... I went down to a lot, which is in the Red Sea that we were talking about earlier. And um, they like gave me fins in a circle and said, get in the water. And I went into this fairy world and I was like, oh my gosh, we live on the same planet as that. Like, how did I not know this my whole life? But I, it was too late for me to switch my major. So I just graduated from college. And then I applied to like work at a marine station in the summer where I like basically washed dishware for graduate students and made coffee and photocopied things back when there was photocopies. And, um, and so, you know, I think that's like one way to do it is like get a summer job somewhere where there's a ton of, there's rain stations around the country and around the world. Spend some time in a lab and just see if you really like it. And so um, then I very slowly kind of cobbled my way into grad school um, by doing a bunch of these internships and until my resume looked good enough for me to get into grad school. But my grad school degree wasn't about coral, although I loved coral from the very beginning. I ended up working on satellite imagery of the ocean. That is so cool. I mean, everyone has their own way in. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that getting a PhD is necessarily what you need to do. There's these coral restoration groups that you can work in. There's a lot of... Um, tourism industry that has like guide programs where you can learn about the ecology of an area. Like in Australia, they have these, this incredible guide program where you can learn about the ecology of the Great Barrier Reef. And then you're licensed then to take people out onto the reef and show them what's out there. Um, so there's other ways into the marine world and policy, like, please, please, go into policy, <laughs> like try to get our policymakers to pay more attention to the ocean. One thing I forgot that I wanted to ask you about, I remember like in the early 2000s, there were all these stories of like coral reef restoration. I remember seeing it on like Dateline in 2020. But then I remember reading these articles like three or four years later that were like, the coral fucking hated those like tires. And now there's like a bunch of just like shitty junk in the ocean, like in a few of that, that it's funny. But what happened no, with right. those stories? I think you're right. Yeah, the coral did fucking hate that shit. So like, it was yeah. like tires I mean, and, and like metal beams and stuff. And they were just like, ew, what is this? They hated it. Yeah. And that's why the Mars restoration that I saw in Indonesia was so impressive because the coral really liked it. But yeah, you know, you can't just throw trash in the ocean and expect coral to live on it. So like it does have to be done properly. And I have seen like, you know, I went I went to Bali after I was in Sulawesi and I saw some restorations that look like just mossy messes. And so it, 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 it doesn't, it's not an automatic that the coral will grow on anything you throw down there. Um, it does have to be done right. And then do people ever have to like clean up the restoration? Like, or like try to like 
fix the restoration. Do you think anyone ever pays attention to that? No. Uh, No one pays attention to that. Yeah. People. So is there like a lot of just like failed, fucked up restorations all over the place? Or there is? Yeah. Sorry to say that. So that could be like someone else's work is like how to like turn those into like thriving things or at least like just do away with it to maybe let nature like fix it or something. Yeah, I don't know if I have the answer. I don't know if that's like worth our effort either. Like, shouldn't we? Yeah, shouldn't we focus on the things that we know will be successful right now? Oh, yeah, that's true. My mind always goes to like that one random like last night. My we just spent our first night in our um, apartment in New York and uh, I like, and the house is like so organized and like amazing. But then there's like these two pieces of like luggage in the bedroom. And I was like, what are those two pieces of luggage? Like, I, I just, I, I focus on like the most random, like <laughs> things that's not the main issue, you know? It's like, that's not the like, point at all. And I'm like, oh, my bad. Yeah, you're right. So yeah, I see and, what you're saying. And like, and really ultimately, let me just say this. Ultimately, the thing we really need to do is get on the ball of climate change because that will have the biggest impact on coral of all. So if you really do want to help Coral and say you're landlocked or something, you know, please, please talk to your policymakers and tell them how important dealing with climate change is, because that is ultimately the biggest issue for Coral. And the rest of it, we probably can deal with. But like, if we don't deal with climate change, it's, it's a big, big, big problem. So, so in Spineless, you you are like an expert on jellyfish, and you also said that they're kind <laughs> of like similar to coral. So, yeah. are they like first cousins? Is that just like because they all have like the stinging cells? Yes, yes, they're cnidarians. So, like the cnida in uh, Greek, I think, means like nettle. So like, Ah. you know how the nettle plants are stingy things. So all of them have the stinging cell. That's like what unites them. And um, they also have like similar body structures with like just one hole in and out Uh -uh. (laughs) and and tentacles. But I want to learn more about jellyfish. So perhaps we'll have to do another episode about jellyfish. Okay, deal. I would love to. Yeah, jellyfish jellyfish are cool. Do we have any evidence of like gay jellyfish stuff or like queer jellyfish stuff? I love gay stuff in the animal kingdom. Well, there's a lot of other interesting things. So if there's not, it's okay. Or there um, is a little bit of gay stuff with jellyfish. Well, no, but there are these fish that I (laughs) do. I do want to tell you about these, these fish. They're called the Maori gobies. And these aren't jellyfish. They're vertebrates. But like, so they just pair up. Like whoever likes each other just pairs up. And if it's two girls or two boys, then one of them, when it's time to reproduce, one of them just changes sexes so that they can reproduce. That's cute. That's cute. And then there's this worm that, again, they just pair up. And whoever's bigger becomes the female and whoever's littler becomes the male. And then the male grows faster than the female, so it gets bigger. And then they both just switch sexes. And then the the one that used to be female is now male. The one that's male that's now female. And then that one, the littler one, the male grows faster again. And so for their whole lives, they're just kind of like growing bigger and changing sexes back and forth. Cute. And that's how they just kind of hang out together. And like they are what they are when they are that. Oh my, I love that story, but not as much as I love this entire time that we spent with you. Dr. Julie Burwald, you're amazing. This is also now your time to like, is there anything we missed? Anything that you want to add? 
I feel like I learned so much. I'm so excited. I can't even stand it. But if, if there's anything to be remiss, if we didn't add, now's your chance. I think we said most things. Um, I think we did it. I think it's such yeah. a good episode. Oh, cool. And like, definitely like, yeah, I kind of got on my little climate change soapbox there at the end. We love so climate good. change soapbox and it's very imperative <laughs> to the future of what you study. So I think that, I mean, that was just great. And I'm just so grateful for your time and for you sharing your expertise with us. This is such a good episode. I'm so glad. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. Dr. Julie Burwald, the pleasure was all ours. Thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. We're obsessed. Go Coral Reefs. Go you. Um, and make sure to read Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs. It's out now. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Dr. Julie Burwald. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is amazing, honey. It's called Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please, honey, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim.